Top of the morning to you, or afternoon or evening, whenever you may be listening. My name is Scotty, and welcome to Season 2, Episode 7 of Chip Time. We are in the heat of the moment, people. So much track and field action going on this weekend. If you miss some of it, there's still going to be some great action to catch. We have Division 2 National Championships. We have Division 1 Regional Championships. And, of course, the Prefontaine Classic. So much action if you are a fan of this sport to catch. And I'm excited. I want to just turn the TV on and just talk about it as I'm watching, but I would get way too distracted to cover what we have on tap for you people today. And of course, we teased it, we handed out the assignment at the end of the last episode. We will be going over Fire on the Track, the Steve Prefontaine story documentary from about 25 years ago that was put together talking about the life of one of the most influential American athletes of all time. So really excited to kind of break that down, give some of my thoughts, Uh, really want to give some analysis on the 72 Munich 5K since it's the 50-year anniversary. And we'll also sprinkle in a couple things that Nike didn't mention in that documentary. A few things they conveniently left out. So I'm excited to shed some light on those things. In addition to that, with it being Prefontaine Classic Weekend, we're going to preview some of the big events going on Saturday And especially given the fact that so many athletes scratched out of their events and so many other athletes have been added to those events, I'm glad we didn't cover these events last week. And so I'm going to be able to give some predictions and some previews with the correct start list. So a ton to get to, but before we fully dive in, just briefly wanted to touch on my Memorial Day 5K race that I am on the doorstep of. First 5K of the season. Will the undefeated streak remain intact? Probably not. Probably not. But we're going to go out there and give it our best effort. So really just a few points to touch on as far as training updates. First of all, I'm on a more structured plan at this point than I had been initially. So as I mentioned a few weeks ago, much of the early spring had been just dusting off the cobwebs for me, putting in some more volume, and also kind of relearning how it feels to be running sub seven mile pace for some of these steady runs and of course workout sessions. But now I'm on a more structured plan so I can potentially peak in the late summer and then peak again in the fall. So my goal is to hit that crim 10-mile race in late August and then do a half marathon in the fall. So I'm sorry, Charles. I'm not looking at doing a full marathon at this point, but I do want to get a quick half Let's get 130 this year. It's time. It's time to do it. And I'm excited to have some more structure. Unfortunately, I have been dealing with a slight planter issue in my right foot. But fortunately, it doesn't really affect my running. It's just something I notice when I put weight on the back of my feet when I'm standing in maybe a squatted position. But I'm really glad I have a network of knowledgeable people who know biomechanics, who know the muscular system, and they have given me some advice on which parts of my legs could benefit from supplementary exercises. And so we have a good plan. It seems to be the gastroc in my my right leg. So the gastroc and soleus, kind of the two horses in your, your calf system right there. And my gastrocs really need some more dedicated foam rolling and also some calf raises 
and a few other exercises that should be able to keep me going without this becoming an Achilles injury, a full-on calf injury, or, or something that's really going to put the red light on the season. So that's why this is a team sport, as individual as it seems. I highly recommend if you have any nagging injury or something that has just been bothering you through your training or, or any other aspects of life, reach out to somebody who has more knowledge in that area, whether it is an athletic trainer or someone who is a physical therapist, maybe someone who is a fellow runner but just has more of an understanding of the biomechanical system. For me, that's just been a better way to recover than going the online route of trying to search out things. Uh, you get more more intentional advice than maybe the generic off-the-shelf solutions that you'll find on the internet. So that's just my advice since I'm kind of going through that myself, but I'm very fortunate that it has not affected my running and we're, we're feeling a little more fit now than we were for that 10K. Got a good tempo run earlier this week, and then I actually got a, a decent track session earlier this morning, uh, or I guess early afternoon. So 12 by 200 with 200 meter jog recovery, classic staple middle distance workout. And even though I'm not training MD anymore, um, I'm just trying to every other week get a speed session in, keep the fast twitch going, just because that really helps me for my training mold. I, I'm comfortable with mid-distance workouts. I have familiarity and experience with it. And so every other week, it's good to get that kind of session in. And I still got six miles of volume total today. So I think it was a productive one. Don't really have a time goal going into this race. Just want to have fun with it. But I will say, after watching Fire on the Track, I kind of cooked that tempo run earlier this week. So it's going to be fun to go out there. I expect it to be a more forgiving course than my 10K a few weeks ago. And it really was just something that I put on the calendar to get my butt in gear to start doing workouts again. And uh, I would encourage you guys, even if your peak race is months away, just put maybe one race a month on the calendar, a local 5K or something of the sort, just to get out of that training grind, to be around other runners. And I just think racing's fun. So that's why I'm doing this on Memorial Day for the troops. Let's get it done. So excited for that, but also, of course, excited to get into the main entree of the show, which is going to be our breakdown of fire on the track. So let's take a quick break and then dive into the Steve Prefontaine story. Steve Prefontaine, a name synonymous with Nike and a name that carries so much weight in the running world, in the athletic world. But why does it? What is the legacy that led to that type of weight? When you hear a name, somebody's name, this was a real person. Well, let's try to answer some of these questions as we dive through Fire on the Track, one of the classic little bit dated, but one of the classic running documentaries out there. And we got to start at the beginning. This is not going to be an overall in-depth summary, but you know, there's parts of this I want to dive into further and other parts will kind of hit the bullet points and move on from. But we need to spend some time on Prefontaine because it's just one of those names I heard about from, you know, at an early age when I was just getting into running, uh, even before high school. 
and over time going through this journey myself and following the professional scene now, you see his legacy live on and you see some parts of the way he ran that has translated to today and you also see people, you know, some people not competing with the same fire he had and that's why his legacy stands out. But if we start from the beginning or at least from his competitive beginning, Steve Prefontaine, one of the greatest, I would say the greatest at the time, high school distance runner uh, of all time. So from a middle distance standpoint, I think it's completely undisputed that Jim Ryan is the greatest high school mid-distance runner of all time. Jim Ryan went to the Olympics as a teenager and held the world record in his early 20s for years and years. And I think he held the high school mile record until Alan Webb well over 30 years later. But from a long distance standpoint, there was no one who had run a two mile or a three mile like Prefontaine. And he made the USA, I believe, cross country team when he was 18 years old. So they show Frank Shorter and some of the other guys who were veterans at that time out of the collegiate system and how surprised they were to see this teenager uh, make that team. And so he goes to Oregon, runs for legendary coach Bill Bowerman, and Bill Dellinger was an assistant at that time, kind of a young assistant. And, you know, one important point here is Oregon was already very relevant. So, you know, it started way back even before Bowerman with legendary coach Bill Hayward, and that's, of course, why it's known as Hayward Field. Uh, But with Bowerman, he coached Bill Dellinger, who went on to be an Olympic bronze medalist in 1964. Uh, Phil Knight ran there as well. There was a pedigree of distance running at Oregon, even before Prefontaine. And it's cool to think of today just how far it's continued in that direction. Not to say it's it's a bad school for field events or sprints or the multis. I mean, Ashton Eaton, greatest multi-athlete of all time. And, you know, they have a guy named Micah Williams this year who's one of the best short sprinters in the nation. But, man, there's something about long-distance running that just feels like the University of Oregon. And so Prefontaine was a perfect fit there. They kind of talk about how Bill Bowerman really wouldn't make personal visits for high school recruits, but he finally wrote Prefontaine a letter. And that was, of course, the the, the final nail to send Prefontaine to the Oregon Ducks. And When he gets there, like many high schoolers, I can relate to it myself, he thought he was a miler. He wanted to run the mile. It is the exciting event. It is the event that people people are familiar with that distance. And he said he didn't want to run the three mile because it was too uneventful. You just kind of jog around and then you finally make your surge at the finish. And when he said it was too uneventful, Bill Bowerman told him that you go out there and make it eventful. And he did that. He was your classic front runner, doesn't want to just sit in the pack and and give these guys who are maybe stronger milers a good chance to finish ahead that last 100 meters. He would throw down early in the race, a very aggressive pace and just see who had the guts to go with him. Because with many people, you go out that aggressively, you're going to burn up, you don't have the fitness to back it up, you're going to end up kind of coming back to the chase pack and getting past. But Prefontaine had that fitness, 
and he would dare people to go with him. And that's really what made him so iconic in the late 60s and early 70s is it was must-see athletics. You knew this guy was not going to take a race off. You knew if you got a ticket to Hayward Field, you were going to see this guy put in literally 100% effort. And if he got beat, someone was going to beat him at 100%. He wasn't going to leave it up to just kind of a more tactical style race. And so people would flock to Hayward Field to watch this guy race. And, you know, later on, skipping ahead just a little bit, after Munich, I think it was in 74 maybe, Dave Waddle was going for the world record in the mile. And Prefontaine told him, hey, I will I will set the pace for it. Like, if you want to get this world record, I'm going to set the pace. Just sit behind me, and you're going to have a good shot at getting it. But what was what's so fascinating about it and different than today's day and age with pace setting is Priest stayed in the race and fully intended to win that race. Nowadays, and I'm not completely criticizing this, I, I think there's uh, pace setting is, is very much needed in today's day and age of getting these world standards and these pace setters get paid fairly well to execute certain paces. And so for a mile, what you'll typically see is someone lead the first 800 to 1,000 meters at a slightly aggressive pace, but by taking the wind and also just the people behind them not having to expend that mental energy, they're able to, when the pacer steps off the track, then start to work with more in the tank. And so that's what you see is they'll pace for a bit and then step off the track. But in that race in 73 or 74, uh, Prefontaine fully intended to win that race and he stayed in it. And Dave Waddle ran a 353, which was like at the time one second off of Jim Ryan's record. Uh, but Preet's tucked in for a 354 after putting in all that work. And it's just so, so like just encouraging and inspiring to see someone know that they're going to lose, they're most likely going to lose a race, but they're still not going to go down without a fight. And also, you know, it was enjoyable in this documentary having Bill Bowerman just being kind of an old man, you know, in the old man stage of his life, saying some things that probably wouldn't fly out of context, but you were like, Bill, I know what you're trying to say. It's okay. But, you know, you could see he was reflecting on coaching in the 70s. He still had that kind of hard-nosed attitude and and he knew Prefontaine was someone who needed to be coached hard and had such a drive that they needed someone to be pushing them to be their best. They didn't need like what we would consider a player coach or a player's coach these days where someone kind of puts your arm around you and, and encourages you and is kind of your friend. Pre needed someone who was going to be a hard-nosed coach to try to get every ounce of talent out of that guy. And, and Bowerman was the perfect figure for that. So as the years go by at Oregon, Prefontaine is pretty much undefeated, uh, unbeatable in the NCAA scene. And he begins his sophomore and junior year breaking American records. And so he's got his eyes set on the 1972 Olympics. He's also got his eyes set on world records as well. And really the sky was the limit for this guy. So 1972, he's 21 years old. He qualifies for the Olympics in Munich. And they did a good job in the documentary of 
reminding us how much tension there was at the 72 Olympics. There was terrorism right on site with hateful groups and being not only 21 years old, but no matter how old you were, it would just be so just emotionally of a roller coaster to be in an environment like that where you're being tasked with putting together an all-out athletic performance. You're trying to get the most out of your body, but emotionally you see these things going on in the world and you're just like, how can I maintain my composure to go out and race when this is going on? And Bill Dellinger talked in the documentary. He went to Munich with Pre. He was a young assistant for Oregon at the time. Um, it was just eight years after his, his medal in the Olympics. And he really had to encourage Pre that like, hey, by running in this, you're, you're kind of sticking it to the terrorists. You're telling them that like they can't push us around. And so he really was there and, and encouraged him to be able to compete in what was such a difficult time. Now, when we look at the race itself, when we look at the field, what made this so fascinating, it, it, this would never happen these days, but I found it so fascinating that Prefontaine had never really raced against these international guys before. He really stayed in the U.S. And if someone did that like nowadays, I think it would be criticized. I think it would be looked at as you are dodging the best in the world. You don't want to compete against people that are as good as you. You just want to beat people who you know you can beat. But it was a little different back then. And, and we see Pre in this interview clip where he's basically saying, uh, I, I really, as kind of a brand play, I want to make them wonder how good I am. I want them to hear that I'm winning all these races and they can kind of just guess for themselves what kind of fitness I have. Because if I race them, they're going to know the way I race. They're going to know what I could do. But, but let's just let them wonder. And I found it to be actually quite like, I, I thought it was pretty sick the way he handled that because I remember being 21, you know, you, you haven't really failed yet in life. And even though you don't have much experience, you don't have as much to, to fall back on, you have this just kind of like, uh, what would you call it? Like negligence. But it's, it's like a fearlessness as well, that you're not afraid to fail. You're just ready to give it your best shot, and you don't care what the world thinks about it. And so they get into this race, and the way this race finished was one of the great Olympic races of all time. And they broke down how surprising it was that these guys went out at a pretty modest pace through two miles by Prefontaine's standards. It really seemed like if he was clipping, if he was sending it uh, at a harder pace earlier on, in theory, it would have benefited him because the guys who were stronger finishers got to tuck in as they were just going through at a more modest pace. But after two miles, you see that the, the switch flips in his brain that we need to start going now. We, we can't wait till 400 to go. We've got to start going now if I have a chance in this thing. So he starts pressing the pace and he had a goal of a sub four uh, last mile in that race. And what was interesting in the documentary is we heard a good amount from Ian Stewart, one of the British athletes. Uh, Prefontaine would throw that around in the media. That like, yeah, I'm, I'm planning on closing shop in a sub four mile. And Ian Stewart was like, yeah, 
we heard that and i don't know maybe no one in no one else in america could do that but i could do that and lasse viren from finland could do that and so it kind of backfired a little bit that he was trying to to bluff and like intimidate his competition but these were some of the fittest guys in the world as well and they were like game on man game on we're down to race a sub for third mile if that is what it takes and we get to the last 400 meters like i said prefontaine really pressed the first 1200 of that third mile and you start to see moves get made where you had the uh the reigning Olympic gold medalist who who moves to the front, Lasse Viren from Finland, also up there. They pass Prefontaine. And with around 250 meters to go, he presses it. He retakes the lead. He goes into a full sprint. And it is everything you could ask for in a track and field event. You can just see it on your screen. These guys are giving a hundred percent but as we know us who have run the 5,000 before it's hard to keep a full sprint for 250 especially if you put in as much energy as pre did by squeezing it down that third mile so Viren and I'm sorry I can't pronounce the the name of the guy who was the reigning champ but they kind of take off Pre is in third. He's still got space. You just hope he's going to hold on for that bronze medal. And then Ian Stewart from Great Britain uh, closes up and wins bronze over Prefontaine. And you got to think if Pre was conservative there, if he didn't press at 250 to go, he probably could have held on, uh, held off Stewart and gotten that bronze medal. But as we came to know throughout this entire documentary, it's just not the way this guy raced. He put it all on the line every single time. He gave it 100%. Famous Prefontaine quote, to give anything less than your best is sacrifice the gift. And I respect that so much that he went for gold when... He, he really had no business going for gold at that point of the race after he put in that much energy. And it was kind of your, your Ricky Bobby, if he ain't first, you're last. He really wanted to get the gold medal there. And for anyone who watched the 2019 World Championships, it reminded me of the 5K when Jakob Ingebrigtsen was 18 at the time. He was 18 years old and he's going up against all these, you know, world medalists and and record setting people and with about 300 300 meters to go at that bell lap, he did exactly what Prefontaine did. He took the lead and he started going for it. He said, "I think I'm the best miler here, the best closer here." And it didn't work out. Two of the Ethiopians got him. Mo Ahmed also got him. But I just respected so much when these guys go for it. When they go for gold. And not just a medal. But they go for the gold medal. But after that race, fourth place there in 72, Prefontaine sets his eyes on the 1976 Olympics. And here's where I want to sprinkle in a couple more points that the documentary may have not made super clear. So the documentary and really the the Prefontaine lore paints the Munich race as Prefontaine being 21 years old. He's kind of the rookie of the group. He doesn't have international experience and he's going up against these very experienced veterans. These guys who have been on the world stage for a while, they're in the prime of their careers, and he was just this young, thoroughbred 21-year-old going up against these guys. Well, in reality, 
in reality, Lasse Viren from Finland, who won that race and doubled back and won the 10K as well, gold medal, was 23 years old. And he was actually a dark horse to win that race. He was kind of a mystery in and of itself because although he was Finnish, he went to the NCAA for one year, ran for BYU, then he moved to Kenya and he trained in Kenya. And he was even more of a mystery than Prefontaine. No one was expecting this guy to medal going into the race. But for whatever reason, when the story is retold years and years later, I think also because in 76, Viren went on to also, uh, he defended both gold medals, the 10K and the 5K. He's, he's thought of now as such a heavy favorite, as a four-time gold medalist, but back in 72, he was only two years older than Prefontaine, and he was completely unknown. And Ian Stewart, who won the bronze medal, was also 23 years old. So it's just something we have to point out that there's some propaganda here. They want to paint it as, as pre going up against these guys all in the primes of their career. But by and large, it was a younger field. Yes, the defending gold medalist got silver there, uh, and it was a PR for him. I mean, the race was under 1330. That was really quick. That was really close to the world record at the time. But just wanted to point that out because, like I said, he was closer in age to those guys than they make it seem. But as life goes on, 1973... Pre goes back to Oregon for his senior year, continues breaking records, continues winning NCAA championships, and after he graduates from Oregon, he begins also advocating for amateur athletics, and it was really a hot-button issue at the time, because if you remember, to be an Olympic athlete, you had to be a quote-unquote amateur. That's why the uh, before the dream team for basketball was able to play in the Olympics, it was always college basketball players. The Miracle on Ice hockey team was all college players. It couldn't be professionals. And what we saw from Prefontaine was that these guys in the U.S., these men and women who were amateur athletes, were not really taken care of financially at all. So even though they had to train and put in hours and hours to try to compete at the global stage, they were expected to just be able to make a living on their own. And the amateur athletics seemed to like praise them when it was an Olympic year. Like, yes, you are our athletes. We're so proud of you. And then just kick them to the curb the other three years. So we saw a lot of advocacy from Prefontaine. And yeah, it, it was really um, what he was known for after those Munich Olympics. And also in this time, of course, Nike is born. So Phil Knight and Bill Bowerman start Nike. And Prefontaine is the face of it. You know, it, it's, it kind of was synonymous with the brand where these shoes are coming out and he's giving feedback on them. He was kind of like almost their lead marketing guy and field tester. And because fans love to see this guy race with his style, his swagger, his media presence, frankly, his cockiness, it made them want to get Nike shoes and it really brought like casual running to America. People didn't really jog very much as like a form of hobby exercise until this time. It really had a boom in the 70s because like later on with Michael Jordan and basketball shoes, people wanted to be like pre. They wanted to be like pre and it's so cool to hear uh, Phil Knight 
in this documentary where he says, you know, for all the years Nike has been around, for all the athletes that have worn our gear, at Nike HQ, we have a statue of one athlete, and it's Steve Prefontaine. So, yeah, it was absolutely awesome to hear about that that Nike revolution. So, yeah, so unfortunately, the story, you, you have all this hype. 72 Olympics, the years after, and you want to have this storybook ending. You want him to have another shot at the Olympics with this experience, with additional fitness, and you want that gold medal for Prefontaine. So the year before, 1975, he's tuning up for summer races, setting more records. There was that mile with Dave Waddle. And during this time, he goes to a party with some friends, and when he drives home from that party, he gets in a car accident and is killed at age 24. Very young. With all this hype, with all the advocacy, with Nike growing, just like that, it's over. And the documentary left it pretty vague. They were kind of like, yeah, he he went home and got in this fatal car accident. And it was really sad that like sometimes bad things happen to good people. And they didn't even mention, which is widely known, that he was drunk driving. That in the autopsy, they found that he was twice over the legal limit. So what I think is too bad about that, as tragic as it is, either way, right, is that I really feel like Nike could use this to honor his legacy, to, um, to while we promote the life of Steve Prefontaine and what it meant to the running community, to also bring awareness to drunk driving and to discourage that and to speak out, speak about the dangers of that. But instead, Nike kind of has this hush-hush about it. We don't want to talk about that. We only want to talk about the positives. And so, like I said, they they left that vague. But as we look overall, the documentary, Steve Prefontaine's life, his legacy, I really feel like the biggest thing he left with the way he ran and all he accomplished, was an establishment of the American running community. And as much as there were American distance runners who had had won gold medals before uh, Prefontaine, and Oregon had been successful before he was there, the revolution was started with Prefontaine, with the way he ran, the guts he showed, and how he literally was unwilling to have any excuses to not give 100%. It inspired a generation of runners, and it's still inspiring the next generation. And it's sad it came to a tragic end, but as we enter into pre-classic this weekend, 50 years after the 72 Olympic 5K His spirit lives on as strong as ever. And my goodness, have they assembled quite a field for pre-classic this year. I'm pretty fired up. Going to take a quick break and then let's jump into, I will say, the top six. We'll, We'll do rapid fire top six events to be excited about this weekend at the Nike Prefontaine Classic. All right, people. You know, I'll admit, I'll be the first to admit, a little bit of nerves going through the Prefontaine story just because I want to do it justice, right? Like, it is such a a, a mythical, tall tale of track and field history that you want to do it 
justice and like yes shed light on the facts but also try to keep that mystique that makes the Steve Prefontaine story so special so I hope I did at least like uh, a C minus job I would be happy C's get degrees as they say and we'll take it but moving into pre-classic I said on the top of the show a lot of athletes scratched out of competition which led the way to other athletes getting those spots and most of them who scratched out didn't really provide a reason but you know it's it's kind of at that point of the season where many of these Americans are tuning up for championship racing so that they can make the world's team this summer in a couple weeks I want to say Father's Day weekend is the USA trials besides a couple others like the 10k which is gosh darn it like four hours away from as I sit here right now I'm so stoked for that go back and listen to the last episode if you missed it where we previewed and made my stone cold picks but that was so much fun that we got to make a few more picks here we're going to start out with the men's 1500 so one thing that's interesting with this meet is there are diamond league races and there are non-diamond league races all within the same track meet what that means kind of confusing i know is that the diamond league ones count for points on that professional circuit the non-diamond league ones you guessed it do not count for points on the diamond league it doesn't really change anything as far as watching these events and the aesthetics of these events and frankly there are great fields in both types of events but the diamond league ones definitely draw more foreign runners whereas many who are in the non-dl races are going for a world standard or trying to tune up for the u.s trials So the reason I bring that up is for the men, we have a 1500 meter race, which is non-diamond league, but then we also have the Bowerman Mile, which is a diamond league race. And we're going to save that one till the end, because that's got got the most horses in the back, if you know what I'm saying. But the men's 1500, hey, we got some horses in the back here too, okay? We got many names you may be familiar with. One in particular, Hobbs Kessler of the Very Nice Track Club. It was this weekend last year that he ran a 334-1500. Before anyone in the NCAA had ever done that, he did it as an 18-year-old in high school. We got him, but he's not the youngest one in the field. We have Caleb Lakeman, son of Dirk Lakeman, who was a professional runner for quite a long time. Caleb Lakeman, high school senior, he has been on a tear this year. He, the first race I saw from him, because I don't watch like high school only meets, but when they have an elite high school field at bigger meets, I will watch. I believe Oregon Relays, he ran the two mile. Someone correct me if I'm wrong, but I think that was the one. And it was a good race. I couldn't tell you. I I knew the who's who of everyone in that field. But this kid had a heck of a kick to finish that race. And it was somewhat similar to other races we've seen in the past where someone surges late and then they get past and you you kind of count them out, kind of like Chrissy Gear in that 4x1500 at Penn Relays. But the guy kept going. The guy had it in the tank and took it to the line. And and I guess he recently ran um, a faster mile than his dad ran when he was in high school. And like I said, Dirk Lakeman, legend. So that's uh, that's pretty... I enjoy the sentimental things like that when you see um, that type of passing of the torch so he was a later addition to this field 
as well as Christian Noble. So no introduction needed. We've been covering the Revenge Tour all season. This is his New Balance debut as a professional. He's got that 336 from a few weeks ago, and he's trying to break that and probably trying to get under 335 if all things go according to plan. Sam Prakel in this field, he was on the World Indoor Team. Mark Scott in this field from the Bowerman Track Club. He was a medalist, bronze medalist in the 3K at Indoor World Championships. And Sam Tanner is an interesting one. I'll throw Neil Gorley in there as well. They're both in this field. They took down Cole Hawker at the uh, USATF Distance Carnival last week in this distance. So these guys are running pretty good as well. So I got to make my pick here, and I will say I am not comfortable with this one at all. I think it's wide open for most of the guys you see here on the list. But I'm going with Mark Scott, really just because I think he's the best runner in this field. I'm not confident in it because he's more of a long-distance guy. We've seen him shred even some half marathons on the roads, but I just trust Mark Scott more than anyone else in this field. And I really wanted to pick Christian Noble here, but as dumb as this sound, as this may sound, I am a firm believer that it takes a few races in new spikes to fully get used to the way they feel. And he's new to using these new balance spikes. I think he's been the dragonfly for a while. And though he has the fitness, you can call this a dumb point if you want. I think it's going to take some time to get used to those spikes. Okay, I'm scrolling down here. Like I said, we, we saved trees this time and uh, we, we went for the virtual. Here, let's do the women's 1500. Let's jump into the women's 1500. Great field as well, featuring Faith Kip Yegon, the defending Olympic gold medalist. You've got Corey McGee and L. Purrier St. Pierre, who were the some of the American Olympians last year. Laura Muir from Great Britain, she was a medalist. We've got Josette Norris, just made the world indoor team for the U.S. Shannon Osika with Nike, one of the local legends. Shout out Waterford, Michigan. Her teammates, Jessica Hull and Sinclair Johnson, also with Whatever Pete Julian's team is called now, I, I can never remember it. Uh, I kind of miss when we when we called them Pete's Dragons last year. That had a nice a nice roll of the tongue to it. But yeah, and then one more name to mention here: Gudolf Teske of Ethiopia, who was your indoor world champion just a few months ago. So her and Faith, plus all these Americans and Laura Muir from GB. It's a loaded women's 1500. I believe this is a Diamond League race. My pick, though, pretty easy here. I'm not saying it's confirmed, of course, but you can't pick against Faith Kipiegon. She was on fire last year, all the way to that gold medal. And I can't think of the last time I saw her lose a race, maybe 2019 Worlds uh, against Safan Hassan. That's the last one I can remember. But Faith is one of my favorite international female runners, and I expect this to be a pretty fast time. I'm, I'm pretty excited for that one. Next up, next up, yeah, let me, we got to scroll to this one. If it wasn't for the Bowerman Mile, I would say this is the race of the weekend. It's the men's 5K. This is a crazy field. And, you know, I wish Cheptegei was in this one. I really wish he was going for the world record with these guys. Um, although I can confirm that his Friday world record attempt does have other racers in it. It's not just like a pace fest with, with three guys. But we have the best, the rest of the best in this field. Salomon Borrega, Olympic gold medalist in the 10K. We've got Paul Chulimo, Olympic bronze medalist in the 5K. My boy, right? My boy. We got Jacob Kiplimo 
from Uganda. He is the Robin to Chapter Guy's Batman, and he was the, uh, I want to say, bronze medalist in the 10K. It was Borega Chapter Guy Kiplimo, and he holds the world record in the half marathon. So the dude's got range. That's not all, people. We've got Samuel Tefera originally said he was going to run the Bowerman Mile, and he's stepping up to the 5K. This guy, let me tell you, this guy was your indoor world champion in the 1500. He's the one who beat Jakob Ingebrigtsen. So I have no idea what he's going to do here at 5,000. We've also got Mo Ahmed. This is such a stacked field. Mo Ahmed, who was the silver medalist, uh, behind Cheptegei in the Olympic 5K. So that one was Cheptegei, Ahmed, and then Chalimo. And uh, Baryu Aragawi, he was fourth in that 10K, just ahead of Grant Fisher. We've got Jordy Beamish from the On Athletics Club and Sam Parsons from Tin Man Elite, a couple guys who train here in the United States. An absolutely loaded field. And hard to make the pick here. Because I could see probably, I'd say I could see four guys pretty confidently winning this race. Being Ahmed, Berega, Chalimo, and um, who am I missing? Kiplimo. I could see any of those guys winning this one. But I'm going to go with Berega. Um, he just won the, the gold for indoor 3K at Worlds. Like I said, Olympic 10K gold medalist. That shows range. This guy's fearless. And I think he's going to going to take it at the line and that should be a phenomenal phenomenal race let's move down here we got two more ladies races let's go to the steeplechase this one's a bit more top heavy in my opinion you know maybe not as deep of a field from top to bottom but we certainly have some phenomenal women in this race Peruth Chemutai Olympic gold medalist last year from Uganda, Courtney Frerichs, U.S. record holder, silver medalist at the Olympics, Emma Coburn from the U.S., the 2017 world champion. And, you know, beyond that, I don't think it's it's too exciting of a field. Uh, Beatrice Kapchowicz was originally on this list and scratched out. She's the world record holder, so she will not be competing in this one. And I'm going with, I don't even know if this is a dark horse pick because she's been so consistent for so long, but I'm picking Emma Coburn here. I really feel like she wants to get back on a hot streak after having a disappointing end to her 2021 season. But you got to remember, it was not a bad season for Emma. She still was the U.S. champion and had a bad race in Tokyo but I think she's had a long time to train. She's probably the most consistent of anyone in this field. And I feel like at this point of the season, she's the safest bet. So I'm going with Emma Coburn in this race. And we got to double up here because I want to, we'll do another women's race because I want to end with the, the Bowerman Mile. This one, this is my biggest disappointment, I got to say women's 800 and the reason it is so disappointing you can see it on the graphic it was billed as keely versus a thing it was billed as a rematch of the gold and silver and bronze medalists from last year's olympics a thing mo of the u.s keely hodgkinson of great britain raven rogers of the u.s raven's still going Keeley's still going, a thing scratched out. Not sure why, not sure if there's an injury or something going on, but Keeley is running well right now. She ran a 158 in Birmingham Diamond League last week, and it was clean. It was a 59-59. Pacer didn't really do their job, went out kind of slow, and that tells me she is probably in you know, 156 shape, all things considered. And if a thing was in this race and we could see them push each other, who knows what they could do. But as you can probably guess, I'm picking Keely Hodgkinson here. It's it's kind of a no-brainer from my perspective. 
But there's a decent field around these women. Sage Herta from the OAC, she recently broke too. Michaela Meyer, who was your NCAA champ last season. Uh, Gemma Riki from Great Britain. And Ajay Wilson, who was the indoor world champion a few months ago. But we got to close it up here with, of course, the main event of the evening, which is the Bowerman Mile. And this one, besides Josh Kerr, who's not in this field, it has pretty much everyone I would want to see here, which like almost never happens in track and field where everyone is running their main event against each other. You know, you typically only see it in an Olympic or world final. So that is what makes this so sick is we're seeing it happen on the track that will be hosting the world championships in a few months with your boy on the hurdle crew potentially. So We'll see. I'm still trying to figure out what I'm going to be doing there so I can make these flight arrangements. But this Bowerman Mile, this one, it's got the reigning Olympic champ, Jakob Britson. It's got the reigning world champ, Timothy Chariot, who is silver behind Jakob. We've got Cole Hawker and Cooper Tier, the top Americans, as well as Clayton Murphy, who has been running really well lately ran a 145 a few weeks ago in Puerto Rico I believe it was we also have Ali Hoare of the OAC who won the Milrose Wanamaker mile and he's been running well and the dark horse here we, we talked about Caleb Blakeman in that 1500 Colin Solomon how do you say his name Solomon uh, Solomon it's, it's a tough one, but the Newberry Park, Colin Solomon, he is in this field, high school senior, and it's going to be interesting because if you think back to the year 2000, LG was in that Bowerman Mile and, and took home the win, but that was the race when a high school Allen Webb ran a 3.53 for a, a high school mile record to take it from Jim Ryan, and as much as I don't expect Colin to be able to run that, no one expected Allen to do that in 2000. People were, were wondering if he would break four. And he ran a smart, powerful 353. So it's going to be going to be cool to see uh, Colin Solomon against literally like the two top guys in the world and also the, the two top guys in America. But as far as my pick for this one, I really thought about picking Tim Chariot. He's kind of a mystery at this point because we haven't seen him race very much recently. And, and as much as there is a powerful field around these guys, I'm going with Jakob. That that 13 flat he ran in California recently, he, he looked like he was jogging it. Um, the fact that it's rumored that he won silver indoors with COVID um, and just the fact that he's the reigning Olympic medalist, reigning Bowerman Mile champ, it's a safe bet and I think he's going to win it. So very, very excited for all of these events, which will be on NBC on Saturday I'm sorry for getting this one up late. Uh, most of you probably going to listen after these events go up, but I had some things come up, and uh, yeah, well, we should have a bit more flexibility in the summer to to get these more midweek, where I can give some recaps and previews a couple days in advance of these. But like I said at the top, pre-classic weekend, D2 Nationals weekend. D1 Regionals weekend. It's a great time for track and field. I'm excited for my race completely just for fun, but it's going to be good to get out there. So as we wrap up the show and uh, get these TVs on, am I right? If you'd like to contact the show, leave us an email, chiptimepod at gmail.com, chiptimepod at gmail.com. 
If you enjoyed today's episode, please leave a five-star rating on Apple or Spotify. And if you leave an Apple rating, leave a review there as well. Really helps out the show. And if you'd like to join the Chip Time Strava group, all you need to do is follow me on Strava. Give me a kudos, please, for that 12 by 200. Charles is the only one who's given me kudos. And it's been like, been like five hours. So I'm starting to worry if my splits weren't as legit as I thought they were. So help, help a brother out. And uh, that's all we got for now. So have a great weekend. Keep working hard. And we'll see you next time. Thank you.